Welcome back to Knowing God with Heart and Mind, that regular visit to the virtual church classroom at Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana. I'm Pastor Dan, and over there next to me is Bethany, my daughter. And we are bringing you episode three of the It's a Wonderful Life Bible Study. Bet you never knew there was such a thing. Well, we are beholden to the people at Brown Chair Books, and in particular to the author of this particular study, uh, yeah, whose whose name I just you know uh, don't have in front of me. I'll tell you in a second. <laughs> I hope he doesn't mind if I sort of mess that up on him. Hang on, I've got it. Vermilier. It's like Vermilier. Vermilier. Yeah, I was going to say it's a very nice name. It is, and he's done a wonderful job. Mm-hmm. And, and if you buy the book, please buy the book. That's one of the nicest ways you can thank him for, for uh, you know, allowing us to share this with you in our our virtual church classroom. Um, it, it was designed for regular church classrooms, but we've adapted it for this. Now uh, he happens to just love this movie, which is why he has analyzed it ever bit as thoroughly as Bethany and I. Uh, interestingly enough, last night we were watching the colorized version of It's a Wonderful Life. Which and just, I like the colorized version, but it weirds me out a little because I'm so used to watching the black and white one. The nice thing about the colorized version is that it gives you a, a way to really observe the details. So mm-hmm. if you love this movie, as most of us do, uh, who are listening to this, then you, you kind of you get to look at things. Like I pointed out that that uh, in George Bailey's office, he has a picture of Warren G. Harding, you know. And uh, there's things like that that you notice more clearly because of the color. Um, and shout out to colorists. I realize that maybe all of the colorists from It's a Wonderful Life might be gone now, but A+. That has got to be a hard job. Yeah. Or had to have been a hard job since it's not really a job anymore, but... Well, and of course now it's done digitally. Yeah. And and it's pretty remarkable how the technology works, but I digress. Yeah, me too. So um, we are on episode three, and this one is being recorded on Thursday, December 19th, 2019. Yep. That's uh, one week and less a day from Christmas. And so we are trying to keep our promise to finish this up by the end of the year so that you can enjoy it. We have, um, in this episode, we're, we're going to be taking a look at, at the scandal and how that affects George, how that affects us. Before we get started, I, I want to correct a technical error um, I think it's important because we have people who listen to this who love the movie a lot, just like we do. And uh, I mentioned that um, that the whole story of Uncle Billy staggering off off camera and crashing into something. I mentioned it. I said that Thomas Mitchell was actually the one who crashed into something, and that's incorrect. It Thomas Mitchell, being the veteran actor that he was simply took advantage of an opportunity <laughs> that was created by a stagehand who knocked something mm-hmm. over. So to correct my 
uh, slightly twisted trivia. But Capra was so excited about it that he gave that stagehand a bonus for the day. Yeah. yeah. Because he just was so happy with the result. <laughs> created a memorable moment. And honestly, the stagehand shouldn't have given a tip to Thomas Mitchell because well. <laughs> it wouldn't have been so funny if Thomas, Thomas Mitchell hadn't made such a good mm-hmm. use of it. So... So, yeah, somebody made a crashing noise, and then Thomas Mitchell just says, I'm all right, and there you go, it's history. So, um, you know, this episode reminds us that that no matter how cleverly and thoughtfully you uh, approach decisions in your life, sometimes you make bad ones. And so this episode starts with a clip uh, where George is sort of uh, second-guessing the decisions that he's made, because... As we've already seen, he's sort of dragged along through his life by circumstances that are beyond his control, and and he's always forced to make decisions that are that that are better for other people than they seem to be for him, because all of his hopes and dreams are being set aside in order to accommodate the other people in his world and the same sort of selfless way that his father did, mm-hmm. and. Um, in this scene, it's very familiar, I think, to most of us. It's the scene where George and Mary have uh, just welcomed the martinis into their new home up at Bailey Park. And uh, after it's over, George is, uh, well, reticent? <laughs> well, he he ends up talking, Sam Wainwright shows up. Right. And Sam is this character who's a dear friend to both of them, but he's this character who kind of pops up and is almost there as the foil for George, not in terms of character, but in terms of like Sam Wainwright kind of got everything George wanted. Yeah. He's he's like, living George's dreams, but not with George's character. Y- right. And not that Sam Wainwright is a bad character. He's, he's a friend to them, truly. Yeah. And shows up in a big way in the end of the film too but like sam goes into a business that's very profitable and even and and i think sometimes for george when sam shows up it's frustrating because george has had opportunities to get in to business with sam and do things with sam and chooses the building and loan chooses bedford falls chooses mary over the opportunities with Sam. And so when Sam shows up, it's a reminder of the things he's missed. Yeah. And so that puts him in kind of a funky place. And then this scene happens. Then you set up the scene beautifully. Let's look at it. We just stopped in town to take a look at the new factory and then we're going to drive on down to Florida. Oh, why don't you have your friends join us? Why, sure. Hey, why don't you kids drive down with us? Huh? Oh, I'm afraid I couldn't get away, Sam. Still got the nose to the old grindstone, eh? Jane, I offered to let George in on the ground floor in plastics, and he turned me down cold. Oh, now, don't rub it in. <laughs> I'm not rubbing it in. Well, I guess we'd better run along. Awfully happy to have met you, Mary. Nice Come on, meeting you. Bye, Jane. George. Glad to see you. Come on, George. See you in the funny paper. Come on, Mary. Sam. Have fun. Thanks for dropping around. Florida. Yeehaw! <laughs> George is about to get in his car. 
and then he kicks the door shut with his foot and just as you said that conversation just reminded him of how much his life was fixed in Bedford Falls so yeah well you know that there's a an oft quoted phrase for a reason where that goes comparison is the thief of joy Hmm. and I think that's a big not a big problem for George's character but it is a character flaw for him yeah you know it's not a major major character flaw but it's a character flaw sure because he does you know and and I think that it's a character flaw for a lot of us a natural part of being human I guess but yeah I think everybody has someone that they know, even in like a peripheral way. Yeah. Or somebody that's really close to you that you kind of look at them and say, well, I could have been where they are. You know, in a lot of ways, I, I often, and maybe most people can say this because that's kind of the genius of Frank Capra's interpretation of the story. But, you know, I can relate to George on so many levels, and there's so many things that that I, I connect with him on. And yet, the one thing that you sense with George is that most all of his decisions are very selfless. I can tell you that my life and the decisions I've made haven't always been selfless, but they've been decisions that put me in a position where I had to decide what to do about my my mistakes you know let's say and when i decided what to do about my mistakes i could either compound them or i could take the high road you know and i think we can all agree about that and this is really what the gist of this lesson is is that george george is frustrated with the decision he's made about a lot of things and yet you know i think he kind of instinctively knows that He's been doing the right things. You know, I was talking to someone today in my office uh, who's very young, and, and I just said, you know, your life isn't so much about where you're going as much as it is about how you're going there. You know, that, that it's good to have goals. It's good to have uh, lofty ambitions. But at the same time, a whole lot of life happens along the way. And... Um, I can look back over the last 30 years of my life and, and, you know, when I think about what some of my larger goals were, I guess I could say that I've achieved them, but more than anything, what I've done is that I've tried to be there for my family. I've tried to be really invested in my job. I've tried to be really invested in the people because my job is all about people and, and to, to not just do the job, but to be you know, an expression of Christ through the priesthood of, of the pastor, you mm-hmm. know. And, and so, uh, y- you know, but then there's mistakes, and then you have to say, well, what about the mistakes? And then there are decisions. I mean, I got burned a couple of times in this ministry business because I didn't play very well uh, with the people who were calling the shots, and they kind of punished me for it, mm-hmm. you know. And then I always had to say, well, all right, so are you going to react negatively to that? Or are you going to try to make the most of where you've been 
put and with the circumstances you've been given because who who's really responsible for why you're here mm-hmm. you know you could say it's this this the man who's who's you know putting you down because you don't play according to their rules and you could say that that makes you somehow a noble victim but at the end of the day what i realized was is that it's god who is in charge of my life because i gave him charge over my life and if i'm there it's because he wants me to be there Mm -hmm. and who am i to complain to him how am i a noble victim in his eyes i'm not i am simply someone who said that i would work for him whatever he asked me to do and then complained because it wasn't as fun as i thought it should be or as glamorous as i thought it should be you know and when i realized that i had to come you know completely repent one thing that i think the movie does a really great job of though is like every time that george is faced with a setback in his mind there's a really beautiful result like um well like when harry we watched that that scene last week when harry comes home with a wife Hmm. and a job yeah and George is going, oh, okay. And and again, being very selfless because he hears what a, what kind of job it is and is already planning on not letting Harry stick around, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems like a real downer for him and as a setback for him. But because that happens, his mom gives him a little prodding and he ends up going over to see Mary. And you, next thing you know, they're getting married. Yep. So every time that he has what he sees as a setback on, in his life plan some sort of divine intervention seems to happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. And boy, ain't that the truth, you know? And, and we said this movie's not really, it's a secular movie. There's not really anything explicit. Obviously there's these angels, but you know, it starts you know, like, with prayer, but other than and that, it starts, well, but, it, but it's yeah. a very secularized yeah. version of, but as know. like, you know, we were watching it last night and I was thinking like, there's a lot of seemingly divine intervention in this because, Really, every time George thinks that life is not going the way he wants it to, it doesn't go the way he wants it to, but it goes the way that needs to happen and makes life better for him, really. Well, and that that sets up the next segment really well, because I know for a fact that whenever you try to do the right thing and divine intervention results there will always be demonic intervention. Yes. As sure as you please, if you start trying to do God's will, or you try to do the right things, mm-hmm. you can be sure that Satan will be there to tempt you. Just mm-hmm. like he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, just like he uh, tempts all of us when we are on the right path. In fact, one sure-fired indication that you're winning against the enemy is that temptation and this this segment is the one where potter is so frustrated because he's tried everything he can think of to destroy the building alone and george has beaten him Mm -hmm. and so potter takes a totally different approach and it results in the biggest temptation of george's life up to that point and it really is just downright evil it's uh, you know i love lionel barrymore in everything i've seen him in but this in this he is the most vile of the villains yeah he's really terrible yeah 
quite a cigar, Mr. Potter. You like it? I'll send you a box. Well, I, uh... I suppose I'll find out sooner or later, but just what exactly do you want to see me about? <laughs> oh, George, now that's just what I like so much about you. <laughs> George, I am an old man, and most people hate me, but I don't like them either, so that makes it all even. You know just as well as I do that I run practically everything in this town, but the Bailey Building alone. You know also that for a number of years I've been trying to get control of it, or kill it, but I haven't been able to do it. You have been stopping me. In fact, you have beaten me, George. And as anyone in this county can tell you, that takes some doing. Now, take during the Depression, for instance. You and I were the only ones that kept our heads. You saved the building alone. I saved all the rest. Yes, well, most people say you stole all the rest. The envious ones say that, George. The suckers. Now, I have stated my side very frankly. Now, let's look at your side. Young man, 27, 28, married, making, say, 40 a week. 45. 45. 45. Out of which, after supporting your mother and paying your bills, you're able to keep, say, 10, if you skimp. A child or two comes along, and you won't even be able to save the 10. Now, if this young man of 28 was a common, ordinary yokel, I say he was doing fine. But George Bailey is not a common, ordinary yokel. He is an intelligent, smart, ambitious young man who hates his job, who hates the building and loan almost as much as I do. A young man who's been dying to get out on his own ever since he was born. A young man, the smartest one in the crowd, mind you. A young man who has to sit by and watch his friends go places because he's trapped. Yes, sir, trapped into frittering his life away, playing nursemaid to a lot of garlic eaters. Do I paint a correct picture, or do I exaggerate? Well, what's your point, Mr. Potter? My point? The point is I want to hire you. Hire me? Yeah, I want you to manage my affairs, run my properties. George, I'll start you out at $20,000 a year. $20,000 a year? You wouldn't mind living in the nicest house in town, buying your wife a lot of fine clothes, a couple of business trips to New York a year, maybe once in a while Europe. You wouldn't mind that, would you, Jones? Would I? You're not talking to somebody else around here, are you? You know, th this is me. You remember me? George Bailey. George Bailey. <laughs> George Bailey, whose ship has just come in provided he has enough brains to climb aboard. <laughs> Holy mackerel. Well, how about the building and loan? Oh, confounded man, are you afraid of success? I'm offering you a three years contract at $20,000 a year starting today. Is it a deal or isn't it? Well, Mr. Plunder, I, I, I know I ought to jump at the chance, but I, I just, uh, 
I, w I wonder if it would be possible for you to give me 24 hours to think it over. Sure, sure, sure. You go on home and talk about it to your wife. I'd like to do that. Yeah, yes. then in the meantime, I'll draw up the papers. All right, sir. Okay, George. Okay, Mr. Potter. Oh, no, now wait a minute here. Wait a minute. I don't need 24 hours. I, I don't have to talk to anybody. I know right now, and the answer's no, no! Doggone it. You sit around here and you spin your little webs and you think the whole world revolves around you and your money. Well, it doesn't, Mr. Potter. In the, in the whole vast configuration of things, I'd say you were nothing but a scurvy little spider. You... And that goes for you, too. Well, that is um, that is a powerful scene in in a couple of ways. Um, one of the things that our uh, book study uh, notes tells is that in the 1930s, the average annual household income was about nineteen hundred and seventy dollars. George was making approximately $2,340 a year. That's $45, 52 weeks. Mm -hmm. So he was actually making an above average income. Mr. Potter's offer would multiply his salary almost by a factor of 10. Think about that for a mm -hmm. minute. Think about your current salary and imagine someone offering you 10 times that amount for three years and a couple of things come into my mind when I think about this because because you know I've been watching this longer than you have and I've been thinking about it most of my life because uh, I realized last night as we were watching it that that there are so many life lessons in this movie that I've taken to heart and lived by and and there are two things I want to tell you that you uh you listeners just get to listen in in number number one is one of the hard terrible lessons that i've learned in life the hard way more than once is the reality that a leopard doesn't change its spots yeah. the reality is that there are people out there that you will very quickly begin to realize are not for you um we live in a world where you're not allowed to say anything intolerant. You're not allowed to say anything that might suggest that some people, uh, you know, aren't as good as you, or especially, you know, if you say it in, in a way that implies that it's just assumed because of the color of their skin or something. Mm -hmm. I'm here to tell you that that is absolutely categorically wrong. You should not assume someone's bad because they don't share your religion or they're not in the same color as you or they're not the same gender. But if you get to know people, or they have a pretty good reputation that they've earned, or maybe a not-so-good reputation that they've earned, it's wise to be careful. Because <clears throat> there are people out there who can be just as slimy and slick as Henry Potter in that scene. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And what George had to remember and didn't remember, it sounded so good, he wanted it to be true. And what George had to remember finally came clear to him when he felt that cold, sweaty palm. Yeah, that's my favorite. He he shakes hands with Potter, and as soon as he shakes hands with Potter, he that's when he kind of... He looks at his hand and he feels his hand and that's when he lets loose on He Potter. realizes this is still that snake. It's still that guy, yeah. That scurvy bug, that spider, that twisted, sick individual. And what that means is that he also realizes that it could be three years of hell. Mm-hmm. And after the three years, the building alone's gone and George will probably be destroyed like somehow robbed of everything that he'd gained. And even if he's not, even if that doesn't happen, I can't imagine that his character would be seen in the same way with the town. Right. Because the town can't stand Potter. That's true, but you know. And I don't think that you know, George, it may have sounded really good to him at the time, but once he was under contract, I think he never would have forgiven himself for well, compromising and, his beliefs. And the people in the town would have said, I never thought George Bailey would sell mm-hmm. his soul to the devil, mm-hmm. but he did. And make no mistake about it, this is having the opportunity to sell your soul yeah. to the devil. That's exactly what it is. And whether people in our current politically correct society wish to agree with this or not, I will go out on the limb and say there are evil people out there and you have the right to make that determination, especially if you are informed by the Holy Spirit and the Bible Mm -hmm. and you may suffer because you have decided that you're not going to sell your soul to that devil. And I can tell you from bitter, hard experience Not bitter because I failed, bitter because I was strong. I've had people offer me the opportunity to do something the church really wanted done, the congregation really wanted done, if I would let them entirely fund it and then do it their way. Mm -hmm. And what they were offering me was a chance to sell my soul to the devil in order to accomplish something that I wanted. And I had to say to myself, you know, if I want it that bad and the only way for me to have it is to sell my soul to the devil, then what I want is wrong. Yeah. And what is worse is the one who's offering to pay the way and own it Mm -hmm. is wrong. The contract, you know. And so make no mistake about it. In every profession, in every walk of life, if you try to do God's will and you're serious about it, and you actually influence others to follow God's will, you can be certain that Satan will show up and he will offer you an opportunity to sell your soul. He will. Mm -hmm. And you have to remember, just as George did, that that leopard did not change his spots. Mm -hmm. That's still the same slimy character that it's always been. And... You know, I was doing my notes in preparation for sermons that won't occur till March and April um, during the last week and a half or two, about three weeks, really. 
but just yesterday I was looking at some notes I'll preach on the Ten Commandments in uh, in the early spring. And one of the things you begin to realize is that the Ten Commandments aren't really Ten Commandments. They're really five. And they are five commandments with two parts. Mm-hmm. One's about your relationship with God and the other's about your relationship with people. Mm-hmm. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. One through five, God. Mm-hmm. Six through ten, neighbor. And God's name is equated with a person's reputation. God's reputation is unquestionable, and God will defend God's reputation. And God says, you should care that much about your reputation. And so reputation is an important thing. And I've actually had ministry colleagues suggest to me, even if people in authority over me suggest to me that I shouldn't worry about what people think of me and all that nonsense. And you know what? If it's a self-consciousness that's built on a lack of self-confidence and everything, that may very well be true. But in, in some of the cases that I'm recalling in my thought, it was more of a, you know, your reputation's not that important. You shouldn't worry about it. You know what? It is. My reputation's everything. If people in this church community and this, in this uh, local uh, civic community if they know me to be a trustworthy person who tells the truth, who lives honorably, does things that are consistently in, in honoring God and so forth, that's important. Mm-hmm. That's really important because then when I point them toward the Lord, they've got to take me seriously. And so your reputation's important. And this segment reminds you that George's reputation was earned because of his character just as surely as Potter's reputation was earned because of his character. And George just forgot for a minute who Potter was. And mm-hmm. that's powerful stuff. Now... Well, and this, that scene does not take place very long after the encounter with Sam Wainwright. Like, they, they come close together. Yeah. So... And I think that that's, you know, that goes along with what you're saying, too. The devil likes to strike when you're vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that's a very good point. George is really feeling like a failure, mm -hmm. especially when he sees, you know, and Sam means well, but he says, I offered to let this guy Mm -hmm. in at the ground level, you know, and and, um, but it pays off in in the end. Well, according to Paul in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, what's the secret to being content? And why is contentment a process that we must learn and work at? Philippians 4, verses 11 to 13. And you know what? I've been working at this one most all of my adult life, and I only feel like I've achieved it in the last few years. (laughs) Yeah. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Hmm. And Jesus says in Matthew 6.33 that we must seek first the kingdom of God. Period. Mm-hmm. It's not that complicated. 
Yeah, I liked that the study guide had a question that asked if contentment has to do with happiness. Because mm-hmm. I think people equate them and they're not the same thing, really. Not that, not that God does not want us to be happy, mm-hmm. but contentment's a different thing. Because contentment is kind of acceptance of your role in the kingdom on earth, whatever that role is. Yeah, I mean, George... It's not necessarily being, con- like, I, sorry, because I just want to be clear that it's not necessarily just, like, accepting your lot in life. Right. No, no, it's... But, but you know, because, and, and we have to remember, the thing is, is George is such a likable character, even when he's young and ambitious, that we forget that he made it really clear to his father that he wanted to do big things. Mm-hmm. He wanted to do great things. He wanted to... He had an aspiration for greatness of a kind. He he wanted greatness. And and there was something there's something so appealing about George that we kind of say, well, good, you know, if anybody deserves to succeed, he's it's, like a big it's George. Dreamer. Yeah. And and the thing is is we do like to see people succeed, but it and, and like we like to see our sports stars succeed. You know, the other night we were watching uh, a football game that, <laughs> that I probably wouldn't have cared about that much, except I really like Drew Brees mm-hmm. as a person, and if his counterpart had achieved the same thing or was on the on the verge of achieving the same thing, I probably wouldn't have cared. In fact, I'd have been a little disappointed. <laughs> but because Drew Brees has revealed himself to be the kind of person I admire, mm-hmm. all of a sudden I'm rooting for him to succeed. But you can't help but cheer, yeah. But but the thing is, is even though he's likable and even though he has a lot of the qualities that I admire. His success is also a potential trap for him, and it could backfire on him because success has a tendency to do that, and Mm -hmm. the devil's always there Mm -hmm. knocking at the door. And and so you see that every day with big stars, exactly. So, so really, George, you know, and and this is what I had to learn in my own life, and this is what I learned through those times when I felt like I was being punished by my superiors. Um, I have no doubt that they were being spiteful, but I also know that. God was using those times to temper my pride in order to make me a more humble person and a more moldable person so that I could learn contentment. Mm-hmm. Because if there's one thing I've needed to find for pretty much as long as I can remember, it's contentment. And contentment doesn't come from reaching your goals or getting all the things you want. Contentment comes when you are willing to do and be the best you can be in whatever situation you're placed in. And, uh, well, and I, you ab- know, I absolutely think that contentment is George's biggest problem. Mm-hmm. He's, He's happy. He has a happy life, a happy wife, a happy family, but he still struggles with being content with his role in his life. Yeah. Yeah, so the next segment is when the scandal hits. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we've already seen how really awful Potter is. And this opportunity that literally drops in his lap, literally, Uncle Billy, well, according to the book, our segment starts with George... uh, He's angry. 
he he goes home because he's angry. Yeah. Because he's just found out that Uncle Billy's lost this money. And given what we just learned about the value of, you know, if $8,000 doesn't seem like that much money to you, remember that George makes about two grand a year. So we're talking, you know, four years worth of salary that just went up in smoke. And what's worse is, is the man stole it from him. Literally. Potter's a little lackey. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, Potter stole it. Yeah. Well, I know. You know, he, he, he saw where the newspaper had the money in it, and he said, get me out of here quick yeah. before he realizes that he's lost yeah. this money. And uh, and so now George has become aware of this. He's, he's lost his cool with Uncle Billy. And there's like an auditor. or like, The bank examiner. Yeah. yeah is, at, is that there. is at the building and loan. Yeah. Wanting to do his job, basically. So there's no hiding and, it because. <laughs> so there's literally just absolute panic, and, yeah. and George is really frustrated with Uncle Billy because Uncle Billy has a tendency to forget things, and so he's just angry because he feels like Uncle Billy screwed everything up. And yeah, he goes home and <laughs> just. So he completely comes unglued, and you know we can all say, well, who who wouldn't blame him for that? Yep. But. Did you put the envelope in your pocket? Yeah, no, 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 maybe, maybe, maybe. Maybe, uh, maybe. I don't want any maybe. We've got to find that money. Uncle Billy, look, do you realize what's going to happen if we don't find it? Listen to me. Do you have any secret hiding place here in the house? Someplace you would have, someplace you hide the money. I've come over the whole house, even in rooms that have been locked since I lost Laura. Listen, listen to me. Thank, thank. I can't think anymore, George. I can't think anymore. It hurts. Where's that money, you silly, stupid old fool? Where's that money? You realize what this means? It means bankruptcy and scandal and prison. That's what it means. One of us is going to jail. Well, it's not going to be me. Yes, this is Mrs. Bailey. Oh, thank you, Mrs. Welch. I'm sure she'll be all right. The doctor said that she ought to be out of bed in time to have her Christmas dinner. Is that Zuzu's teacher? Yes. Let me see. Hello. Hello, Mrs. Welch. Well, George Bailey. I'm Zuzu's father. Say, what kind of a teacher are you, anyway? What do you mean sending her home like that, half naked? You realize she'll probably end up with pneumonia on account of you? George. Is this the sort of thing we pay taxes for, to have teachers... Have teachers like you, stupid, silly, careless people that send our kids home without any clothes on. You know, maybe my kids aren't the best dressed kids, and maybe they don't have any decent clothes. Oh, that's stupid. Hello, Mrs. Welch. I I want to apologize. Hello? Hello? She's hung up. I'll hang her up. What is it? Hello, who's this? Oh, Mr. Welch. Okay, that's fine, Mr. Wells. Give me a chance to tell you what I really think of your wife. George, Will you George. get out and let me handle this? Hello. Hello. What? Oh, you will, huh? Okay, Mr. Welsh, anytime you think you're man enough, you... Hello. Any... Uh... Dad, how do you spell hallelujah? How should I know? What do you think I am, a dictionary? Tommy, stop that, stop it. Janie, haven't you learned that silly tune yet? You play it over and over again. Now stop it, stop it!
sorry, Mary. Janie, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. I... You go on and practice. Pete, I owe you an apology, too. I'm sorry. What do you want to know? Nothing, Daddy. What's the matter with everybody? Janie, go on. I told you to practice. Now go on, play. Oh, Daddy. <laughs> George, why must you torture the children? Why don't you? Wow, you know, uh, it's all part of the craft of movie movie making, you know, so they have to accelerate things. I, my guess is that George has had other bad days. Mm -hmm. He's had days like anybody else when he comes home and the kids are wild and mm -hmm. he's not in the mood. And, you know, all of that happens uh, to everybody. But this day, he's experienced... He's experiencing the culmination of all of his negative thoughts about his life up to this point. You know, this is what I get. I make all these sacrifices. I make all these decisions for the sake of other people. And now I'm about to get destroyed. And it's not even my fault. It's this silly uncle of mine, you know, who's who's caused this problem. And, um, you know... I, I, once again, I understand the emotion because there are so many times when when you're suffering because you're trying to do the right thing and there are things that are happening to you that are beyond your control and it, it makes you angry. Mm -hmm. It makes you angry. And, and you know, listen, if if George was a little bit more of a praying man than he turns out to be, he'd be pretty angry with God right now. He'd be talking to God about, you know, hey, thanks a lot. You know, look what I've done. I've done all of this. It's felt like a big deal to me, but apparently it wasn't anything to you. And, you know, it's, it's like uh, a Job complex, you know. And yet Job never had a Job complex. It was more of a Job's wife complex, you know. She's the one that says, ah, just curse God and die. But he says no. Yeah. You know, can I, can I deny God? just because he gave me some bad luck and then forget all of the good things that happened, you know? Yeah. So, so that's, that's pretty potent stuff. So, um, you know, this is about George's decisions, you know, he's angry. And while he's angry, he does a series of things that hurt other people. Mm -hmm. And those things might be understandable. Um, I don't think at the end of the movie where George is being redeemed by all his all of his good works are being cashed in. Uh, I'm pretty sure Mr. and Mrs. Welsh aren't among the people who come and put money in the basket, right? You know, you never see Mr. and Mrs. Welsh. He's going to have to go and make good with them. And they're going to say, you know... I, I don't care how bad your circumstances were. What you did was mean and hurtful, you know, 
And and that's the problem with the decisions we make when we're not in a good frame of mind. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I think you learn as you get older and wiser is, is that you recognize that you are not in a good place emotionally and you intentionally avoid opportunities to let that emotional disconnect cause you to do or say something stupid. Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't come easily. <laughs> But with practice, you can learn to do it. James' instructions regarding anger. James chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. He is giving us some pretty solid guidelines about how to deal with anger. I put her on the spot, folks. 19 and 20? Yep. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Well, there you go. So, a side lesson from the bigger picture in the movie is... In the moment of his most intense anger, the hardest thing for George to do, but the most important thing George could have done, was find a time and a place to cool down. Um, he's got a serious crisis on his hands. He's got to deal with it. But he has to get himself emotionally stabilized before he can start dealing with it. But you know what? I think he was maybe trying to. Because he's overwhelmed, he's angry at Uncle Billy, and he goes home. Yeah. Which would be a place of refuge for him. Yeah. He goes home to Mary, but then when he gets home, the first thing he finds out is that Zuzu's sick. Yep. So he goes up to see Zuzu, who's his littlest girl. Right. And then he comes downstairs and hears Mary on the phone with the teacher, and he's already kind of upset that Zuzu's sick at all, because he's already in an emotional place. Yeah. And his little girl's sick, and that's when he goes off on the teacher, which shouldn't happen, but I do think he was maybe trying to do what you're saying. That's a good observation, and it just reminds us that people have to be forgiving of their very nature. You know, mm -hmm. we're human, and, and humans do what humans do. I mean, I think he just... It... Yeah, I think he was trying to escape from it for a little while. Can you imagine... Um, this, this question from the, the, uh, the study guide is kind of interesting because can you imagine, you know, you don't have to imagine, think about the things that get us in trouble because we have the ability to instantly put our angry attitudes out there for hundreds of thousands of people to see people post things on Facebook, Instagram, text messaging and everything else that are reactionary and they're uninformed remarks that once they've been clarified never go away and you know it's it's unbelievable the damage mm -hmm. that can be done uh just because we didn't have the the uh in emotional intelligence to uh to kind of throttle it back a little bit and put a governor on the mouth while the engine's overheating so to speak so there's a metaphor for you um Hopelessness leads to bad decisions. So George 
is on the brink at this point. He's, he's, uh, goes to Potter because he's desperate. Mm -hmm. And Potter is Satan. He loves it. He's so telling like... you exactly what you fear most about your life and the choices you've made. He's absolutely despicable in that scene. And then when he tells him, you're worth more dead than alive. It's, uh, it's, it, it's ugly. And then George prays. my friend. Please go home, Mr. Bailey. This is Christmas Eve. Bailey? Which Bailey? This Mr. George Bailey. <laughs> the next time you talk to my wife like that, you'll get worse. She cried for an hour. It isn't enough she's slave teaching you stupid kids how to read and write. You have to ball her out, eh? Get out of here, Mr. Welch. Ah, wait a minute. I want to pay for my drink. Never mind your money. You get out of here quick. You hit my best friend. Get out. You all right, George? Who's that? He gone. No worry. His name is Welsh. He don't come into my place no more. Oh, wow. That's what I get for praying. Wow. You know, this this segment, there's a couple of things to say about it. Number one, um, if you get the book uh, that accompanies the study, there's some great trivia in the back of the book. Mm -hmm. um, but I've known some of this stuff for years. And one of the things I know is, is whenever Jimmy Stewart prays in that scene, they only did one take. Mm -hmm. Because when he prays, He's praying. I mean, he might have been praying as George Bailey, but he's praying. He's really talking to God. He's, he puts himself in the person of, of George Bailey. And that's because Jimmy Stewart was a man of faith. And there are a number of scenes in movies where he prays. Uh, and he says, and, you know, it has been quoted that he has always prayed for real when he prayed. And I believe it. And for him, it's a big deal. He's talking to God, his his heavenly king, his creator, you know. So I really respect that. But isn't it funny how so many times we give something over to God and then immediately insult God, you know. Uh, it It's hard to know what God's answer is going to be. And one thing you can count on is that the more you try to trust God with anything, the more Satan's going to try to break that trust. Um, there's nothing that Satan 
uh, enjoys more than hollow prayers. Mm-hmm. Uh, prayers that are said for people. Prayers that are said for public consumption. Those prayers are of no consequence to Satan whatsoever. But when you pray with an honest heart to God, whether publicly or privately, you will invoke the ire of the enemy. That much is certain. And, uh, you know, it's... (laughs) It's pretty incredible. So as we get ready to wrap up this episode, one of the things that we see is um, how George is trying to cling to the facts rather than place his hope and trust in God. And, and the reality is, is that when we're in desperate situations, we have a tendency to forget all of the other times we were delivered Mm -hmm. and never even consider the possibility that we were delivered in times and ways that we weren't even aware of. Um, I have often thought that my situation was desperate and then I'd have to stop and think about the passage of the years and realize that I got this far Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I'm certainly sure that I didn't do all of that on my own. And, and I can think of times when, when I got help from my parents or from, from, you know, offers that were made in good faith that required me to humble myself. And it hurt my pride mm-hmm. terribly. And then later on, I would look back and realize that when I was in a crisis, God gave me an answer. And... It's not a surprise that to get God's answer, I had to humble myself. I had to swallow my pride. I had to dispense with the, with the angry bitterness that I had towards somebody or something in order to do what was best for the people I cared most about. And, and you know, mm-hmm. I think that this underlying story that ends with George getting punched in the mouth after he prays is George getting his comeuppance from God saying, son, you've done well, but you still think this is about you. Mm -hmm. And until you understand this isn't about you, I'm not done molding and shaping you. And even the punch in the mouth is a a way for God to say, your answer is coming. Mm -hmm. And it starts with you being humiliated. The cross is a humiliation. The cross is naked torture. And it's designed to stretch it out as long as possible, as long as a body can endure. Mm -hmm. And that's the choice that was given for our redemption. So the lesson in this tonight is you can have a wonderful life, but you're going to have to be humiliated you're going to have to be reduced to nothing so that you can look before, stand before God in the proper perspective. Guess that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> or as that guy on the Mandalorian says, I have spoken. I have spoken. <laughs> so, Bethany, we've got three down and two to go. Mm-hmm. Therefore, 
we should probably say goodbye to our friends for now. Mm-hmm. Happy, uh, happy week before Christmas. If you're listening to this later, well, I hope you had a great Christmas. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> if you're uh, listening to it in real time, no Star Wars spoilers. Yeah, really. Don't tell anybody. You know, Don't be that guy or girl. <laughs> okay, this isn't that podcast. Now, It's an pl- important thing to I say. I know, but there's plenty of podcasts out there about <laughs> that sort of thing. That's not what we do. Uh, we are uh, grateful for you listening, friends, and we appreciate it so much. And, and you know, we ask you this every week, and, and, and I know that it must be annoying to you, um, especially those of you who see us in church on Sunday and so forth. But... For the rest of you, if we haven't met you face-to-face, drop us a line. It would mean so much to us. It's fascinating to look at the statistical data that comes with our podcasting system here created and and implemented through podbean.com and to see that we have listeners in Great Britain, Australia, New Zealand, Canada. Uh, We have a number of listeners in California at this time. And it's quite fascinating if it's true. Yeah. But I don't think it's true. Um, and, and that's because I know that bots and various other uh, software that is written for a variety of purposes, uh, some more nefarious than others, um, they are going to lie to me about things like that and pop an IP address that just shows up as Britain or California. Mm -hmm. So that's what we'd like to hear from you. Drop us a note if you are one of those listeners from outside of Jasper, because it would just mean a lot to us to know you're out there and uh, it would be an encouragement to us. Uh, Call it a Christmas gift. But for now, I just want to thank you for listening. Remember that you can learn all about us and Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana by going to shilohum.org, S-H-I-L-O-H-U-M.org. Org. And uh, we'll see you next time. God bless you and goodbye. Bye.